Good afternoon, Injection Radio listeners. I hope you're well. Uh, this is Ultimate Steps. We are a weekly radio show broadcasting music from around the world. Instead of just me this time, I'm joined by some very special guests as we whisk you away to the Balkans. Tamara and Isis are two women who recently co-authored a paper on the subject of dark tourism. That is, exploring the subject of why people visit places shrouded in tragedy. Now, this is particularly relevant in the case of the Balkans, and specifically Bosnia and Herzegovina, where Tamara is from, as it's uh, experienced a very troubled past in the last 30 years. Uh, as we talk about the recent history and of the former Yugoslavia more generally and its fall, we will also be exploring topics related to its musical culture that actually flourished in the period uh, leading up to its dissolution. As we get to grips with this very complicated history, we'll also hear how the combined influences of jazz, funk, synth pop, rock, new wave, all melted together in this cultural stew of um, what was former Yugoslavia. Also, you can expect some fairly uh, shameless butchering of Bosnian, Serbian, and Croatian phrases by myself. So if you don't enjoy the show, at least you can enjoy that. Um, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing, you can reach us at Alternate Steps on Instagram. Continue to support community radio as always. And All right, so we're joined by Tamara and Isis. Tamara is from Asfar, a... Uh, international NGO with a e-journal publication and ISIS uh, part of a Manchester-based collective activist group called No Borders. Um, and we're going to be discussing um, uh, Balkans, uh, Bosnia, dark tourism and uh, Yugoslavia, Yugos, former Yugoslavian uh, music in general. So a lot to cover, but um, I just wanted to start uh, by asking each of you kind of um, how you got involved in this article about dark tourism in, uh, in Bosnia and uh, how you got involved in, in the journal more broadly. So um, me and Isis and our friend Mackenzie went traveling around the Balkans in 2019 and we did a sort of road trip around Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, Croatia yeah. And um, these are all sort of themes that were being raised while we were there. We were like discussing different things that we were hearing and um, just kind of meeting tourists that were saying that they were like coming to Bosnia to see the ruins and stuff like that. We just started discussing it quite generally. And we hadn't really had our minds made up on like what we feel about it. And then anyway, we came back to um, the UK and Isa sent me that Aswara doing a call for submissions. And then um, I wrote an article for them and they were then hiring a Balkan editor. So I um, applied for that. And then, yeah, we just, just decided to collaborate. And well, it all stemmed from that one experience of it directly, I guess, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Also, um, my kind of education about the Balkans has come through Tamara a lot. And I previously did, um, a module at university that was about films in the Balkans. And I did a kind of collaborative essay using an interview with Tamara and her experiences as the basis for it. So we've kind of been collaborating on a lot of these ideas and discussions. So lockdown was like a good time to forge that into something together. And um, yeah. Yeah, so you were you were like there, or you, you, it was always your first time in, in, in Bosnia as well when you went. Yeah. And I'd been wanting to go for a really long time, me and Tamara. I'd been planning a trip for a long time. We've had a lot of like conversations over our mm. friendship in the years um, about that mm. kind of history. And I've always found it a really fascinating place. So yeah. And then kind of through those conversations was a springboard to like wider mm. research on dark tourism itself after having like actually experienced it, especially for me as someone going to the Balkans for the first time and tomorrow for someone whose heritage is from there. Um, yeah, I feel like the uh, the Balkans kind of operate 
is kind of at this sort of midway point between like what we consider like you know like east, east like Soviet Eastern Europe like places like uh you know with dark histories uh like uh, Chernobyl for instance where like it's about brutal environments and natural disasters and I feel like the the recent trauma of the Balkans that's happened in the Balkans has made tourism there kind of this midway point between you know you know think visiting things that are kind of still lingering in recent memory to uh you know exploring a, a city which is actually like uh really diverse and and now quite made quite like rate rising in popularity so how how like uh you know being herzegovinian how do you um how do you perceive those changes that's happened within your lifetime for instance um based on what your family's told you, but also based on your own experience. Yeah, so um, I've been going to the Balkans basically every year of my life, since I can remember. And um, I was sort of, I knew about the war, it was spoken about at the dinner table <laughs> pretty much every day. But um, being in, so I, my dad's from Mostad specifically, and I would go there every summer and I'd, basically just had no idea that it was like divided and so it's divided between Muslims and Croats mm. and I was like crossing the sides just you know sort of innocent and young not realizing that like that it, it was still so politically like intense and um only when I grew older and started speaking to some of the locals I realized just the complexity of how it is today and then I started picking up on more things so for example, like the sniper tower that we spoke about in our article, um, I was seeing that there was just this demand for Western people to come and sort of explore the ruins and everyone was always talking about how sad it is and you know how crazy the conflict was and they, they went to this abandoned, I don't know, site. And it was always about the war when you talk to tourists and my experience of it had always been like, sort of the natural beauty and I don't know, going to the restaurants, it was all about the food and the culture and stuff like that. And then, yeah, I just found it. These tourists and they were like, that, that was their goal. That was why they came to, they came to see the ruins. That was what they came to see. Yeah, exactly. So I, like before, which I would always tell them about the history and get really excited about it. But then I just sort of, something just didn't feel right. It was just, it was always about the war. It wasn't about like, anything else and there was definitely a sense of like adrenaline going to these places and um yeah. I just think it's an interesting dynamic to come out of war mm. yeah, definitely also with this kind of difference between Croatia and um Bosnia both who had experienced the war obviously in like very different ways and it's a very complex conflict but the way a lot of people and now young people are going to Croatia with no recognition or no association of a place that's just been through a kind of trauma of war whereas like what's happened seems to be happening in Bosnia with new types of tourism is that's like the characterizing mm. force um and things have been characterized solely on on war and also it's kind of association with world war one as well in Sarajevo whereas Croatia's kind of engaged in this like modern metropolis of like electronic music and a lot of people going there and also associating it with like Game of Thrones and this kind of ancient um, civilization, but whereas that history is not part of the kind of like tapestry of how they're presenting themselves, um, which is another interesting thing that we were exploring through that too. So it's a kind of like uh, I think I mentioned in notes, it's like some some sort of kind of combination of the heritage that exists because of the war and this heritage that kind of predates the war. But mm. what do you think are the mo primary motivations? I mean. Were you just like, what was the overwhelming emotion to seeing tourists uh, when you were there, for instance, recently, who were participating in dark tourism? More like a surprise that, that, that of their interest, disgust. How, and what was the, what was the, how did, you know, you mentioned the local communities, how do they embrace the perspectives of tourists? Uh, is it always, uh, you know, encouraging of this for money making purposes, or is it, is it more kind of uh, trying to, educate them about um, an ethical way of participating in in uh, in Balkan culture more generally. Yeah, so I think this is what we found actually really difficult when we were exploring this question, because there's pros and cons for locals, for sure. And I think, I think Bosnia 
exist still today as a country of little opportunity. And I think the demand must have come first. And then from that demand, people then started building these businesses centered around dark tourism as ways of like gaining economically. But then there's also, as we explored, obviously, um, it is a powerful way of telling your story. Um, this is such a recent conflict. And I think a lot of people haven't got the justice that they deserve and um, they want they want people to know about what happened and they want to share their stories. But I think for like sort of the common person, mm. I think it's maybe they disengage with it a lot more. And I think it's almost like, I don't know, I, I've had conversations with locals in Mostar, for example, who sort of just laugh at tourists who are like breaking into the sniper tower and stuff. And they're mm. like, why would they go there? Like, they just don't seem to understand like the want to see these places. Yeah. yeah it's definitely like a complex issue because like as we were saying economics wise um bosnia's got the highest unemployment in europe really um and if there are opportunities for new op economic opportunities for people to use their story to mm -hmm. be able to kind of um like uh yeah create a business or something like that that's not for me as an outsider to like say that's problematic in any way like the um hotel that we looked at in our um essay so there's a hotel in Sarajevo that kind of recreates a war experience and the person who runs it um is from Sarajevo and experienced the war there so it's not necessarily like outsiders that are imposing this on people um I think it's just interesting I think new types of tourism seem to be interested in kind of like proximity to like darkness in a lot of new things like you know we, these kind of new experiences that people kind of pay for and monetize I think there's like an interesting discussion about that and whether it's an actual education or whether it's just like trying to place yourself within this kind of experience and I don't really know the answer to that but I think it's a it's a strange thing that seems to be kind of growing um yeah, presumably well, we have... there are endless um, kind of industries that can be built upon dark tourism. You know, like in Japan, there is um, there's places where that you can go to the forests of where people have committed suicide, and people can guide you around, and their spirits and the different groups of spirits according to who you talk to. And I'm not saying, I mean, that's obviously quite uh, that's quite uh, kind of different from the kind of deep-bed political tensions that exist there. But what I'm saying is, you know, the, the, the endless, you know, the, the, the tourism industry always succeeds where there are new opportunities. And like, it seems like dark tourism constantly provides those. And so there's, how, it, it seems like ethical conversations about it are hard to have when there's that financial incentive. Yeah, I think what we were also exploring in the essay is the fact that there needs to be more financial like choice for people because in Bosnia they're in a harder financial situation there's less opportunity so therefore people are maybe more kind of forced not forced obviously but they they end up in that route because it seems more attractive and that shouldn't have to be something that people kind of end up doing like there are so many parts of Bosnia and the culture that where the heritage is so rich and the landscape so beautiful and where it there's a it can be presented for tourists in such a different way I mean, I also, I've engaged in dark tourism before in other places. Yeah, when I was in South America, I was a lot younger, but we was in this place called Potosi and there was tours that were going into the silver mines mm. that you could go to. And um, I've thought about that a lot since I engaged in that because it was very mm. uh, strange experience and it was very strange, the relationship between the tourist and the miners who they were kind of engaging us to chat to inside this mine um, i actually no, I, didn't, I didn't do that even though I, when i was in south america but it seems like there is yeah even even in the uk i mean even the even the drive to get i mean the compulsory thing of like having to go to ypres and belgium and like you know you're having to engage with you know parts of the war maybe that you don't have any family connection with but because you're part of this sort of grand mass remembering you have to engage with it and, and recognize it and experience 
maybe through dark tourism, uh, has some sort of visceral reaction to, to war to provoke some sort of, you know, interest in it, um, historical interest in it, at least, you know, you know, um, but. Yeah, I yeah, think that's can... Sorry, go on. Sorry, yeah, I was just gonna say, I think that's where it becomes difficult because I know in the UK there's like reenactments and stuff like that. And it's yeah. like a playful approach towards looking at history. Um, and that's where I feel like time is just like the biggest factor there. So with World, World War One and stuff, I feel like enough time has passed to like understand what happened in the war and to like appreciate mm -hmm. it in that way. And then I think with the Balkans, like it is still so fresh. It is, you know, people are still like mourning their loved ones. Mm -hmm. Divisions are still like in place. And I just think to look, I don't know, it's not the time to look back yet. Mm. But yeah. yeah, that goes kind of goes on to the point I wanted to make about like uh, memorial, memorial, like how do you appropriately memorialize something when there are still divisions there, you know, when there's still disagreements about how things should be memorialized. And uh, you mentioned that there's some sort of more of a kind of a, a, a kind of a different distinction between, for instance, how other Balkan countries like Croatia have dealt with this or past or Serbia, you know, um, and I kind of I kind of wonder why that is, you know, is it because they've agreed to a, a kind of a more kind of under the carpet approach of, to, to use that phrase? Or... Mm. Well, yeah, I just think the whole way that Bosnia-Herzegovina is set up mm. makes it so complicated. So like the way the war even ended was by a, a plan that was put in place by America, which like divided it into certain republics. That was meant to be just sort of a short term kind of action plan. And it's it's still like that today. They have like three presidents with a like a rotating presidency. There's, you know, so many constituencies. It's so complicated. And I feel like it's really stunted Berha and being able to move forward. And I feel like Croatia and Serbia, you know, they're kind of more united in their nationalism i guess and they they understand their histories in like specific ways whereas the people of bosnia herzegovina don't and i think it's easier for serbian Croatia to sort of neglect that and not you know not kind of build a tourism industry around that whereas bosnia herzegovina i don't know like a lot of people are like the conflict was more brutal there and um, it's been so arbitrarily kind of divided up at so many points in history um but um, yeah, I, w I actually wanted to ask about that sort of system of rotating presidents because that, ha that happened after Tito died in the in identity, but it was still a, a part of a socialist republic, right? Yeah. There was still this sort of uncertainty and that, that's, in your article you mentioned how that's, that the dissolution of, of Yugoslavia was sort of, it could be seen in that period, um, even, even, bef even before, you know, the, the, the 90s. Yeah, um, the cracks were definitely like starting to show. And I know there was a lot of, People would always say like, oh, if the war comes to Bosnia-Herzegovina, then it, you know, it's going to be bad just because of how inter-ethnic it was. And, and yeah, it, it just was bad, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. Uh, just with the um, relationship between Croatia and, and Bosnia, there's a geographical element of the borders that's really significant and that Bosnia doesn't have any coastline, but that yeah. Croatia has all of the coastline. Yeah. How is it described as an apple with a bite in it? Um, and that, I think, affects the way people, like, especially with tourism, too. And within that, Croatia's seen as, like, more um, European in culture, always has sees itself as more kind of um, Western European within its cultural heritage. Um, and that's the kind of way that has been self-defined. Yeah, you can, get that, you can get that ferry to Italy, can't you? And... Um... Yeah, it's very westernized in a lot of its, yeah, all the coastal uh, tourist aspects of it. Kind of like, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the East Coast of Mexico is like that, you know, just catered to Americans. I feel like a lot of part, large parts of the Croatian coast just catered to British uh, lads sometimes. Yeah. And uh, I know, I know, I know actually because uh, uh, Tina's told me about that kind of stuff before. And uh, yeah, it seems... Uh, it seems like, a, you know, I don't know what's more annoying to have dark tourists, you know, uh, asking if they could go up sniper towers or to have tourists who show complete ignorance of, of yeah. and, and long-term history. 
Um, Honestly, that's it's such an interesting conversation that, but I think within the UK, there's such a big blind spot towards the history of Yugoslavia and also like the history of the Ustashi who was in Croatia um, during World War II and how there was fascism there mm. um, and how they were aligned to the Nazis during World War II. And like, that's the history that I was shocked about kind of learning so late in my life, even as someone interested in that part of the world. Um, so yeah, it's like such an important balance, isn't it? Like saying something like Srebrenica doesn't actually, a lot of people don't recognize massive um, events like that that happened. Um, and that's a big part of, but then also there's so political how these things are memorialized in different places, yeah, yeah. like a museum in Sarajevo and a museum in Belgrade might be saying or intending to say different things about the war. And that's still so tense. So it's like, who's writing these histories? Yeah, and I think that's a conversation that Brits are only kind of recently aware of. I mean, like, we have obviously had a lot, a lot of conversations here about museums and, and like, the role of slavery. And, like, you know, I, we're obviously, we've obviously received similar educations about, um, like, the history of the war, which was very from the perspective of, of Britain in a, in a, in a, in a shedding Britain in a positive light, you know. And that's maybe why we don't hear about certain fascist groups where we have tourists' interests and, you know, it's interesting how all these all these kind of critical issues feed together when it comes to like just a conversation about history and about yeah. about how you memorialize, like you say. But um, yeah, just going back to that point about Croatia, what I find and reason to do this show actually is because we kind of we're kind of interested in how you know there are these like in the 80s there are periods of like because um, obviously uh, Bosnia uh, or Yugoslavia was in huge amounts of debt. That was piling up but there was a period where there was a lot of uh cultural uh freedoms and there was a lot of cultural experimentation and that was quite fruitful for, for, for things like music and we did a show about japan you know for a brief period in the 1980s was like the leading country uh and then before before it all crashed but it was like you know these these brief periods where actually there's there's lots of, of prolific artists and musicians and um you know, w what do you think is about that the, that period in the 1980s that made it such an important uh, period politically in terms of its downfall, but also musically, you know, uh, for its history that we can look at that and see that as, you know, completely separate from the nationalisms or as influenced, but as, as taking, you know, a patriotism that isn't nationalistic, maybe. Um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that Yugoslavia, was built on such an ideal of, you know, it was like, it was a project. It was like a reconstruction project after World War II. Obviously it was, it was socialist and um, people were kind of told one, one story their whole lives. And I think after Tito died, that's when tensions started brewing. And I say with debt and nationalisms, but then also I do think this kind of exposure to global culture yeah influence people where they start to the point where they start like questioning their ideology a bit more and this kind of dreamland of Yugoslavia started cracking because people yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know like were getting into the punk scene in the UK or something like that and they suddenly were really anti-establishment where their whole lives they'd been mm. you know for the government for Tito and I think yeah culture definitely is so political and it plays such a big part mm. in history but yeah, I think those a combination of those factors really influence like people's mentalities, and it also helped, it helped that the you know Yugoslavia wasn't under the kind of well under the kind of influence of the USSR at the time. You know, having split with Stalin in 1948, it had a bit more exposure to the West than maybe other communist uh, countries did, uh, which I think was part of the reason that they they could learn thing they could like mimic, but also embrace and then integrate and then make their own things like punk and new wave and, uh, um which were which is why it creates this kind of peculiar sound um, yeah but yeah i think, I think also sorry. sorry i just thought in like times of crisis like i'm sure like we're experiencing now when you have a collective transformation in society people start thinking about things differently and new cultural spaces and forms like that emerge, just like um, these places in the 1980s without this kind of symbolic person of Tito, when things kind of 
that that kind of reality starts transforming so does the people's collective ability to like Mm. Yeah, like feed that into different art forms as an energy. I guess you see that anywhere. Um, yeah, and music just played such a powerful role because it was used in good ways. It was used to sort of preach messages mm. to try and make people. I don't know because it, it war felt like it was happening for a lot mm. of people, yeah. and a lot of musicians use music as a way of, you know, preaching that we're all the same and like that kind of stuff. But then it also, on the flip side, there was a lot of nationalistic music coming out particularly turbo folk um, and that was specifically sort of popular in Serbia and that was a kind of um, mm. it was a way for like people from rural communities to kind of have their voice heard yeah it just became this really political thing that suddenly you know during the war Turbofog was being played on the battlefields and it became like really nationalistic and it really just defined that whole era. So yeah, it's really, music's always been very powerful. And there's a kind of, sorry, I know Eamon had a point here because he wanted to talk about how, you know, um, you know, we reflect, and this goes back to what you say in your article about reflecting and projecting, you know, Western tourists, projecting what they want to see into the ruins uh, or like, you know, into old, especially uh, things are, uh, are kind of dilapidated and old but that they can adopt into to their own, like have their own meaning for themselves. And the, I think one example of this is, and you mentioned this in your article, this music, you know, how music tourism in Croatia, you know, is all about kind of occupying old buildings. For instance, like it can be old as a Roman amphitheater or like a 19th century Habsburg, uh, like a military fortress, but it, but it, it occupies it and then turns it into some sort of music event and like doesn't there's no there's no it's not it's not like a memorial in any sense of the word it's like the opposite because they just yeah. they use it for its sonic spaces but they don't actually talk about the history of it and I know Eamon had so did you have a question about that because you mentioned it before um yeah I did I did I just wanted to yeah, I was just uh, going to ask about how you thought, what you thought about that people just using Roman amphitheaters, uh, like cultural grounds. I mean, these are cultural grounds, like filled with history and stuff, and people just blasting Western music all over it. <laughs> all throughout. It was built as a theatre by the Romans. Like, isn't that amazing that those places are still being used for celebration? Yeah, yeah. And I mm. guess, in a way, like, I, I wouldn't expect anyone to read up on the history of every, I don't know, I don't read up on the history of every theatre or club that I go to and, and places can be recycled with their meaning and there's a positive way of doing that but there is also yeah just like the complete lack of slight res respect for that history too and there's there could be ways of combining what they're doing at the festivals with just a bit more knowledge or a bit more like actual Croatian culture. Well my, my experience actually living next to like two uh, Croatian police officers who I didn't know they were police officers at the time and obviously there was like a lot of uh, naughty behavior in the town in the village because it was outside Pula but it was in and um, you know and I could tell I could see their sort of resentment and like if there wasn't it wasn't the draw of the money you know because it's different to have a concert like you were mentioning and then to have like a three-day festival where people are camping on the beach and you know creating all this litter and uh, doing it annually uh, in, in different forms, often in the same place. So, you know, I just think yeah. it's interesting that, and, and this is, you know, someone who's like, uh, was discovering a lot of good, uh, great creation music for, for the show. I, felt really, I, I I just find it annoying that you know, going back to that point about being informed and, uh, and uh, going, you know, what, what, what tool can we use as Western tourists to like, you know, have the right experience of a, of a, of a country where you're, you're actually, you know, you're, you're not being a tourist just to be experiencing sunshine. So, you know, yeah, I think that's a really important uh, sort of line. To, but yeah, you can't, you, like you say, you can't be, you know, 100% informed about every experience you're having. And you, there's no point trying to pretend that you're culturally relative about everything you do, because we're just not. I mean, tourism, you have to, it's about short-lived experiences at the end of the day. So... Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I think, obviously, with festivals, people are just going to enjoy the music and yeah. they're allowed to do that, and it doesn't necessarily need to be. Yeah. Um, whereas dark tourism is a lot more people going there to seek out these experiences. Yeah. And a lot of that, a lot of the time, those people who do that, they also don't actually have 
you know a thorough education on what's happened but they're more just going to like stay in the war hostel or I yeah. don't know the sniper tower and they don't actually engage but I think that there is definitely that's a whole nother conversation of like ignorance of western tourists when they're in these countries mm. I know I mean Isis were in Croatia a lot of taxi drivers and stuff they were kind of complaining about tourists throwing up in their taxis and like jumping on like oh, we we yeah because we when we spent our first night in Croatia and split there was a lot of English tourists a lot of guys with like Irish flags and like all the people getting in a fight were English and then we were chatting to these guys and we were like oh yeah we're doing a tour of the Balkans we're going around to Serbia and Bosnia and they were like why the hell would you want to go there like they didn't there was no understanding of like the rich culture of a place that as a young person is amazing to travel through um and they didn't see the kind of point of being in Croatia outside of the music festival which I found really strange yeah it's scary when you look at places like Spain and Greece and like you see how much those places have turned into sort of party scenes and it's really taken away from the culture. Yeah, whole cities are just devoted to tourists over there sometimes. Yeah. So just devoted. And I feel like that's so, happening in and it's quite scary. But yeah, it's real. like, I know in Greece, like, they saw their route of getting out of the financial crisis um, when the crash happened as tourism and they value that really highly. But I think that will be an interesting conversation in the future about, I mean, people are thinking about tourism in a different way because we can't do it at the moment. Um, and maybe there'll be kind of some movement and change about the amount of tourism with like international travel and stuff is gonna gonna be very different in the future I think. Yeah I think one of the silver linings of this whole situation is that um, you know the kind of you don't you make more, more people make more considered decisions about their traveling and like there's obviously a lot less air pollution there's a lot less like you know yeah wanting to wanting to go somewhere just for the thrill of it you know and to you know I mean, to having having meaningful experiences um, rather than just traveling endlessly, um, and you know, I, I I kind of wish that you know, I'm glad that I in some ways haven't done haven't properly devoted interrailed in that region before because I you know, up until very recently was very ignorant about that region. So it's it's, it's good that we're having this conversation. But um, yeah. also, you go to those places to learn when you're there as well. Like it's yeah, so, exactly. yeah. so massive. Thing and it's great for cultures to share with other people and like there's so many positives around tourism and like tourism in Bosnia as well and seeing all of these different sides of it I guess like you're saying it's like a a there's like this issue of English people treating other countries as their playground mm. um and kind of like you know expectation of speaking English like all of these things you know and just chatting to people and and service industry and then there's also um I forgot the other thing I was going to say, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's what's good about um, talking about music. Going back to music is, is that you, music. You 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 start to see because if you talk about tourism and 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 uh, like neocolonialism and dark tourism, it portrays the West predominantly in a bad light, right? But I think when when it comes to things like um, yeah, looking at musical history, it's a really good lens in which to view. Okay, well now that this was like a mutually influenced thing, and and um, one thing that I want to start about talking about in terms of the, the music we want to play today was, um, you know, the influence of particular films uh, like um, Saturday Night Fever, which popularized disco in, in, in Yugoslavia. I don't know if it's talking about Bosnia, but certainly in, in, in Belgrade, in Serbia. And, um, you know, because disco used to be associated with, uh, you know, and this is, this is another controversial point, but like, um, queer communities and and people, you know, people saw it as other essentially, and especially in New York in the late seventies, and then through film and through the kind of vehicles of of, of heterosexual white men like like um, John Travolta in that film, you know, it became embraced as a mainstream a mainstream genre because those were part some of the those you know Hollywood films are some of the only uh, first exposures people had in, in 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 Europe, and I'm sure it was the case in the Middle East um, to to uh, disco music. So um, yeah, I just thought it was interesting. Um, and just throughout, what I, what I think everything we're going to play today, there has a there has a strong 
sense of, I mean, whether it's covers or whether it's music that's produced by American people, um, there's a strong sense of collaboration there, which is, you know, as a, if you're a historian or if you're somebody who's just interested in, in, in musical history, that's like really encouraging, you know. Yeah. I just want to add that, like, I think people obviously have their ideas about communism, but I would say in Yugoslavia that it was very free and like, yeah, it was kind of it was more leaning towards socialism, and they did have access to sort of these, yeah, yeah. The, to the rest of the world, and um, a lot of people yeah. freely and happy. But yeah. that's another conversation. Yeah, no, but it's good you mentioned that because I was going to say this, like there was uh, a lot of the artists either on Yugaton or this, I can't pronounce, you're going to have to help me with this, but, but the initials are PGP, RTB. Uh, this was like two state-owned labels, right? But, you know, the concept of a state-owned label seems quite far-fetched, but like, the, you know, the, the, the sheer like number of different genres that they have, that they, they put out on those two labels was, was amazing me. And that's made it so easy to actually do research because I could just like go from one artist to another, you know, in, on the same page and I'd find something else that was totally random. Um, so I think it's, I think it's important that there are, there are even models that we can take there, like look at that now in a kind of culture of very fractured musical tastes and be like, you know, we can have diverse musical tastes and not have to be have like tiny crowds that we promote it to like, you know, we can have like major labels that put out loads of different kinds of music and DJs who, you know, use their platforms to just discover music from other countries and don't, doesn't have to be limited to this sort of mainstream underground dichotomy that like a lot of. Yeah. Lot, yeah. For sure. For sure. I mean, yeah, there was so much creativity coming out of Yugoslavia, but also I, there's so many sort of Yugoslav songs that I love. And then I've been in like cafes in England they've started playing a song and I've been like wait what like is this not and then you realize like how much influence that actually was from western yeah. music yeah yeah no I, I, speaking in mainstream I know I know you did your dissertation on, uh, on something to do with Eurovision ISIS I don't know if you want to mention anything about that yeah. um yeah I'm actually speaking at a conference about it yeah. um a youth conference that should be really exciting um but there's a whole community of people who have done their um they are Eurovision scholars like a, a field um and it amazes me that Balkan, yeah yeah but Yugoslavia has always been really involved in Eurovision been around since the 60s um I think 1956 I believe um yeah. but it was also interesting when the Balkans and also when the USSR dissipated because they all became, they kind of were able to show their identity on a European stage in that kind of mm. way, in, in their own specific identities. And um, Serbia won in 2007 quite famously with Maria Safonic's song called Molitva, which is actually a massive, massive banger. But there mm. were some quite interesting um, queer dynamics to that because she was a, a queer woman. Um, oh, yeah and, this, and yeah, this was kind of Serbia's first um, contribution to the Eurovision since they, I'm not sure what year it was, but they kind of went off the scene for a few years because the NATO bombings were happening. In yeah, Serbia. yeah. They didn't <laughs> and yeah. then they came back with Mar with Maria Shurjovic, who, um, yeah, as you Sorry, say, was really, really butchering that um, pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Even I just said it wrong. It's Maria Sharif, which sorry, <laughs> just clarify that. Um, and yes, yeah, so she was seen as this kind of like new face to Serbia, and like mm. yeah, the origin is. Sorry. Do you say she was Roma? Yeah, so she was Roma, mm. and she was queer, and like for Serbia, oh. that was a big. Yeah, but Eurovision is a really interesting mm. space to look at the way identities of countries that are created and and recreated because it's such a European wide stage and it was really fascinating in Eurovision because they changed the rules a couple of years ago because southern European countries kept winning basically and um because it was deemed that they were like these countries were voting for their neighboring countries and so they actually changed the rules so that um they now had to have these like professional votes as 50 percent of the um vote count and through that, it's like seen as this kind of attempt to like rebalance basically Western states 
Um, so it's actually really interesting because it's like even those power dynamics of Europe are, re, are playing out on the Eurovision stage. Yeah, um, so I find it a really fascinating mm-hmm. way of looking into all of these moments of European um, unity and disunity. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I was just going to add that like when I used to watch it with my family, when the voting would happen and it would be like, oh, Serbia gave Croatia like four points and we were like, oh, the snakes. And it was like so political. Yeah. Get like we didn't get the points from our neighbours and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course it would have been so different like watching it, you know, 30 years ago, you know, when um, Yugoslavia, didn't they win it a couple of years before they broke up the, the country to solve? Yeah. Yeah. So they won came last while the war was kind of starting. I think it was like 19. Oh, yeah, ba- Baby Doll, wasn't her name Baby Doll? Also an amazing song, Baby Doll Brazil, and it mm-hmm. came last, and I think they got zero points. Yeah. There's, um, there was another, during the war as well, it was really politicized Eurovision, and there was like the Bosnian um, team, they were, they were highly publicized as having gone through the siege of Sarajevo via sniper fire to, to get to the Eurovision, to get to the Eurovision stage. Um, but I also think, I mean, as a young person myself, like where else do you see visibility in one night to every single one of these European countries that you might not normally know about, listen to people from, hear people interviewed about, you know, especially all these different countries around Europe and having exposure to them. Yeah, I sort of, I've I underappreciated Eurovision my whole life, but maybe that's because, you know, you, you're a, it goes back to like the how you know people fear the mainstream just because it's the mainstream but it's actually like there is actually like loads of interesting things that can be found now my mom's a musicologist so she's always interested in like people who write about like k-pop for instance and stuff like you know highly popularized so I've, done, I've also done research on k-pop actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to do a whole i think k-pop. I'll, I'll, you're definitely invited so so i think music especially i mean when we were in the balkans music was everywhere live music was in every place every restaurant and there's this like wealth of songs that every single person knows every single lyric to and it was just like it was an incredible musical heritage mm. in and um, the balkans when we're in mostar there's kind of i don't know there's just all these songs that like tomorrow has been sharing with shared with us that it's just like so beautiful that there's this like cultural communication through that like yeah mm. not sound cliche but like music definitely is what unites the former Yugoslav republics and like mm. yeah I would say it's probably the only thing that everyone still kind of agrees on and still loves to play um it really doesn't matter sort of which republic you're from or whatever even like really nationalistic singers like Serbs from Serbia people in Croatia like love her but she was like married to like a warlord and I don't know when it comes to music people just sort of yeah, depoliticize it quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think depoliticizing is really good because you know that you mentioned like Roma and stuff, and like you know, I, I think I think you know that there could be even biases people have in a in a kind of normal political sense that they kind of disappear when you have going back to what I was saying about the influence of that film uh, Saturday Night Fever. They used to have these dancing competitions called uh, Travol Travoltiers I think. Uh, this is what some scholar called Zubek writes about, but he says that you know these these dancing competitions were often run by Roma people, and so there was a way of like integrating them into communities where like oh they, you know they think about because they're distracted by the dancing they don't those divisions of you know ethnic yeah. div- ethnic characterizations don't come through initially you know that even though they're very ingrained, but yeah. uh, Roma people are like known for just producing the best music. Interesting region yeah i mean all weddings and stuff mm. bands and like it's they're really loved and yeah really appreciated yeah i was really um uh there was obviously so much for me to for me to learn for this episode and obviously i was very grateful that you sent me a good uh, great track list um tomorrow's the um knows a lot she knows that song. Yeah, yeah. I put in obviously some of the the first song that uh, that I put in was a um a guy a Slovenian uh, keyboardist, but he was more of like an ambient composer. So it was quite it was quite uh, kind of left field for this show. But I, I I it reminded me a lot of the kind of the kind of I think he's compared a lot to the Giorgio Moradore, the um uh, Mihal Krauj Krauj. I think he's compared a lot to him because of the he's like a synthesizer legend. And um, 
yeah, but uh, uses his own um, sequencers and synthesizers. It's kind of like the romantic idea of like a one-man band sort of thing. Um, but I think the first sort of proper disco tune I put in was um, uh, the the uh, Boban Petrovich. Yeah, that was the one. Um, did I did I did I completely destroy that? Um, no, um, I mean, you've done so much like research. It's great. I know. I know. I, I, I think it's because if I do this, I have to do it. I have to. I want to kind of do it, you know, properly. Yeah. Because it can be a bit simple, shallow, just to be like, oh, I like these songs, but I'm not going to talk about the the other three. But um, yeah. So what I read about this guy, he um, he was kind of one of the first authentic uh, kind of he kind of brought disco into the into the to to mainstream uh in 1979 so similar when that film came out um and then your suggestion um i think this is monster 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 sorry i didn't get the accent i didn't have to use the accent correctly yeah, yeah maybe maybe, maybe. yeah, yeah. which means lucky penguin I yeah. that makes sense. Had the, the cover makes sense, and they were uh, Serbian, right? Yeah. Okay. It's amazing with the internet and our access to culture now that we can find. You can just research into such specific parts of music history and like things like that. I think it's so interesting how diverse people's music taste has become now too, because you can kind of get into all these like really. Hmm specific genres yeah and they, they, on YouTube. yeah definitely yeah well yeah i think we talked about uh i talked about my friend kitty how like a lot of uh, japanese music has been like sort of mainstreamed by 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 like youtube algorithms really randomly but there seems to be forces at play that we're not aware of that like make us enjoy yeah. certain kinds of music <laughs> But um, Serbian synth pop is is probably next on the list for for the people in Silicon Valley. But um, yeah, the next track was um, uh, video uh, video sex title track from the album. I actually really like this, but um, it was very um, it's a lot of like very it's very like monotone, but like but in a kind of very kind of but in a very kind of so like a mixing kind of punk aspects of disco which i really like there seems to be very you know fluid genre distinctions um in the music and then the, um yeah you you chose like a jazz funk piece uh, i'm not going to try and pronounce that Dobre jutro. Dobre jutro. that's good morning good morning okay good by misha Brown. you were listening to that this morning weren't you as well so that's, that's a good good morning tune <laughs> and uh and then the only bosnian track that we had in there was is uh, this one um yeah absolutely not by absolutely yours right by medicino yato yeah so go on no, just, my dad met him once and always talked about oh, it oh really <laughs> How did they meet? In a lift. In a lift. And he was holding his um his paddles. And then the main guy came in and said, Why have you got paddles? And then my dad always said, What a stupid question. Why did he think I had paddles? <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> I didn't tell her they hit off great then, but <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> but it's a great song nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was um you know, the guy, the scholar I was reading as a reference point for a lot of this describes him as a bony M wannabe, but that seems kind of harsh because like, he was actually quite good, but... Um, oh. <laughs> um, well, just a question, you know, when you've seen like Balkan artists in the UK, yeah. has it been, what's the audience been like? Do you think it translates to British fans that aren't don't have Balkan heritage listening to some of those musicians or...? Sorry, are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, no, it's predominantly Balkan people. 
I don't think I've ever seen an English person at any one of these concerts. But there's yeah. a new band. <laughs> there's like, for example, there's a new band called Dubiosa Collective, which are a mix of like reggae, ska, disco, funk, and they do like all their albums are in Bosnian, but then they do like English versions and Spanish versions. And they had a concert in London. It was completely just a diverse crowd. Like they they did it at um, Boomtown as well. So I think. Mm. Yeah, I think that kind of music attracts the West, but mm. it's usually kind of ex yugo rock style that comes in London. Mm. What was the band yeah. called again? Sorry, I missed that. Dubioza Collective. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well for them. Now I'm so into the the Serbia, the, the Yugo style um, stuff now. I've got to, I can't, I, it'd be weird to like, you know, because to stop listening to after this, but. Um, I've got a Send you my like festivals. I'm like the only like <laughs> British guy there. <laughs> um, uh, and I put a track in. Uh, I don't know if you know this band. Ideally, ideally. Yes, so they're massive. They're massive. Okay, so I shouldn't ask. That sounds stupid. <laughs> I don't know the song though, but they're they're really huge and um, mm. they're part of the new wave movement in Belgrade and. Um, yeah, yeah I think the lead singer died quite recently. I think there was an exhibition on actually in London in September, kind of commemorating his work. Oh wow! But, yeah, that's cool. There's just such a wealth of um, culture in the Balkans. That's just like there's just so much mm. that's going on in terms of like having a new wave movement in Belgrade and like a surrealism movement in Sarajevo and like. Tabo folk and all of this, it's, yeah, super interesting. Yeah, yeah, and then there was even you know, even in the late sort of eighties, which is the next choice comes from, it's eighty nine. This is Dina Dornick, and he was um, he was like a TV star, but also like associated with like funk music. Even though funk music had sort of had its heyday by that point, um, he yeah, was so still he quite popular. He was really popular. So yeah. he was, when you say disco, that's mm. the first person people will tell you. Oh, really interesting. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, so this song was Tisi Mio Mislima, which is um, You Are In My Thoughts. And I think it's actually the first disco track that I'd even like heard. Um, wow, and cool. Yeah, he was just like a funny character. He did really funny dancing. And I don't know, he was sort of quite different to everyone else in the scene at the time. Yeah, he. Um, I imagine that you know, it, it's it's more it's interesting to see that well, how those artists cope, you know, because he was just starting out then, so he obviously would have tried to be making music at a time when it was very politically very turbulent. So it must have been like very short-lived initial success, and then you know, amazing yeah. that he came through it and still is very successful. You know, successful artist. He unfortunately actually died from heroin overdose. All right. <laughs> a lot of um, this kind of music did bring a lot of drugs into mm. into Yugoslavia, which hadn't really been kind of popular before. I didn't really read too much about that. So there was a so we, along with all that West influence, there's also a market for for drug cartels and stuff. I guess you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and this next choice, I couldn't find. I couldn't find any about to be honest. But you, you, I did really like it. I started fair. Um. Is that right? Uh, stop trying to pronounce these things. I'll stop this Okay. Uh, Max Sintra. Um, yeah, I think they're from Belgrade. That's as much as I. Okay. <laughs> and um, Sladjana Milosevic. Uh, Milosevic. Um, yeah, she was a she was very popular in rock bands, wasn't she? And uh, mm -hmm. she had this kind of tomboyish aesthetic going on. It seemed like a lot of her. She was very short, like sh sh shaved head. A lot of a lot of the pictures I saw of her, in really interesting, like kind of like a fashion icon almost. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and I also read that she was part of loads of humanitarian projects. Oh, really. Yeah, United U Rock Forces organized for the benefit of paraplegics in Belgrade. Okay. Yeah, there was a lot of sort of anti-war stuff happening. I know like three of the most famous 
punk bands in Belgrade made a song called like Peace Bro Peace was kind of the translation of that and they went around in like a little van on the streets of Belgrade and were just playing that song for like the whole day and it was massive crowds and I don't know loads of like kind of award ceremonies were happening in Serbia whilst wars were going going on um, in like Bosnian stuff and a lot of musicians would be really vocal about what's happening and yeah music yeah. yeah one musician that uh, really interested me in terms of that was um and yeah and this movie goes back to your point about folk traditions was uh, Oliver Oliver Mandich because you mentioned him in the comments you were he was kind of like a David Bowie type figure if there ever was one in, in Yugoslavia yeah so he was definitely in the terms of like pushing the boundaries of gender norms I think he's the biggest example of that he will make up and like and drag and sort of all his performances and it's, I don't know, it, it's kind of a conservative society still, but people love his music so much. Mm. But when you go on the comments on YouTube, it's just really? quite ridiculous. It's all like, wow, like amazing music, but he's gay. And like all of it's just... That's just true. Yeah. yeah, people love him nonetheless. Yeah, it's interesting how people are able to embrace, like love artists that they still, you know, reject, you know, politically. Um, yeah and it wasn't even said if he was gay or not that was never a conversation that was had he never no, i think it's i think it's very simplistic thing in those terms i goes back to that point about disco being you know, originally a kind of uh, you know people being having a phobia about it because it was associated with queer communities and it only took a couple popular hollywood films to transition to being like no this is a mainstream uh you know um thing that like, and then house music came along and then you know so there's you know, it only takes a small cultural transformation and then suddenly, you know, people's biases change altogether. Yeah. So. Yeah. But, um, and then I put a couple in and then I think the one, next one I wanted to just mention was, um, yeah, uh, the this, this sort of shows kind of influence of, um, British music um, and British Anglo-American music um, with this cover of Tears for Fears and they were a synth pop band for Croatia and I only discovered them because actually they got reissued recently on a label called Dark Entries but they're yeah, really good uh, cassette. Uh, I think they changed the lyrics so it's not instead of Mad World it's Your World right so, but obviously the lyrics and the song have changed as well. Um, but yeah, I can't obviously listening to it, couldn't, couldn't decipher it. And then uh, the last song I wanted to, I, I, at the end, um, this is probably like the one song that, that most people would, you know, I think well, I was actually at a festival in Croatia and they played this and then like, I, I, I at the time I had no idea this was because it sounds so American, it's, it's production. Um, but uh, if, I find it funny that, like, reading back now, that they played this at a Croatian festival and everyone was celebrating it, but not knowing that it was Croatian. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's really, um, I think a lot of DJs have started yeah. to do that when they're playing in these specific countries. They're trying to kind of mm. samples from their music. I've seen like, videos of that quite a lot. I think that's, yeah, really exciting. Yes. Yeah, and I think I think it kind of illustrates how decontextualized a song can become. You know, when it's, when it's you know, this guy Aaron, he recorded uh, "Your Love Makes Me a Winner" in New York, and then I think he's I think he I think he's if I get this uh, right, but I think he's born in Macedonia mm -hmm. and moved to America, and then was put up, picked up by a Serbian label. But the the original song is sung in Croatian dialect, so. You know, the, the song almost becomes the the his like the cultural lineage of the song becomes kind of irrelevant at that point because it's all about the kind of co combination of influences that happen and and then it becomes like yeah it's a disco anthem now so it's um, yeah, I thought it was a good one to end with but um, yeah anything else you you want to mention. Why is there only CISO in that? Sorry? Dead. <laughs> um, no. 
dissertation or you can yeah i did my i did my dissertation i think i referenced her earlier about um a folk singer called Serta. Uh, yeah he was married to a warlord and her music just really sort of represented the history as yeah. it went along and she kind of just changed her music to cater to like what was going on politically in serbia that's cool yeah um yeah we, i would have done a whole extra section of that if we had the time but alas i think we're like out of time but um yeah. but like the, the i think i think it's kind of, it was almost shallow of me to try and do a whole show about yugoslavia former yugoslavia but you know whatever you know i think it's good to talk about these things in a kind of broader cultural context rather than just talking about individual histories because it just gets too complicated when you're trying to do that yeah absolutely um Thank you all very much for listening. Um, big thanks to Tamara and Isis who made it onto the show. They're both doing great work in their respective fields, so I'd recommend checking out both Asfar and No Borders.